You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. And welcome live to the Sheen Center in New York. My name is Margarita Mooney, and I am pleased to be moderating this panel as part of the New York Encounter. Why on earth is a panel where we will discuss the epidemic of suicide, mental illness, and isolation that has been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic? Never in my wildest dreams did I think that on Valentine's Day, I would be moderating an event with a psychiatrist, a philosopher, and a comedian to talk about suicide. I'm grateful to the New York Encounter for this opportunity to discuss an issue which for me as a professor and as a person who comes from a family with uh, people who suffer from mental illness to give us a chance together to talk at length and at depth about an important and pressing issue for our society. Let me now introduce you to our three guests. Aaron Cariotti is a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, where he's the director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health. He serves as chairman of the medical ethics committees at UCI Hospital and at the California Department of State Hospitals. He has authored books and articles for both professional and lay audiences on bioethics, social science, psychiatry, and religion. Mary Townsend is an assistant professor of philosophy at St. John's University in Queens, New York. She has written philosophy articles for the general public in magazines such as The Atlantic, The Hedgehog Review, and Plow Quarterly. She writes on mental health, moral relativism, and the moral implications of beauty. Jeremy McClellan is an internationally touring stand-up comedian. He's a staple at interfaith events around the world and has completed sold-out tours in the US, Canada, the UK, and Pakistan. He's a recent convert to Catholicism and has written about his own experiences with mental illness in America Magazine and the Catholic Herald. Now, let's begin our dialogue with uh, Professor Cariati. You are a professor of psychiatry, a practicing psychiatrist, who cares deeply about the intersection of medical science and human ethics. In reading your work, I was really struck by how you take a holistic view of the human person as a unity of mind, body, and soul. And I wondered if you could explain for us how you understand the definition of mental illness and how it might differ from others in your profession of psychiatry. For example, I was really struck by one phrase in your article from First Things where you said, hope is not something you can get from a pill. Could you explain that statement to us and how you understand the intersection of psychiatry and religion? 
Sure. Thank you, Margarita. It's a pleasure to be here at the New York Encounter. Uh, thanks for that kind introduction. And I'm delighted to be on. This is my first time, too, on a panel with a philosopher and a comedian, um, uh, not to mention on Valentine's Day. So I, I try to understand mental illness through the lens of a Christian view of the human person. At least that's the backdrop against which I understand what it is that I do as a psychiatrist. The original meaning of the term psychiatrist, if you break it down into the Greek origins of the word, is that I am supposed to be or supposedly a doctor of the soul, a, a doctor of the psyche, uh, which strikes me as a rather strange and tall order. But uh, Christianity tells us a few really important things about what it means to be a human being, a, a kind of human anthropology, a, a human uh, understanding human person as created good, fundamentally good, and yet fallen, wounded. So this is the postulate of original sin that we don't share with various contemporary ideologies of rationalism or scientism that think the current state of the human being is sort of the normal state. No, Christianity understands that there's something deeply amiss, that we so easily miss the mark um, for a reason. Chica Chesterton once quipped that uh, original sin is perhaps the only Christian doctrine that is empirically verifiable. All you have to do is turn on the evening news. So we're created fallen and therefore wounded, both in our body and our soul, and yet we're redeemed, we're healed by God's grace, we're fully and finally healed and made whole only in heaven. So in this life, we're subject to illness, we're subject to death, we're subject to the, the struggle of disordered passions, and so forth. In addition, our faith tells us that we can't draw a rigid distinction between the body and the soul. Right. So is this a mental illness or a medical illness is for a Christian kind of almost a nonsensical question that body and soul are so intimately united until death that it's really hard to separate the two. And it's important for, for us not to forget that. And then sort of the third basic sort of backdrop element, background element is that we are built to be in communion with others. Right. In the image of God as it trinity of persons where if you want to put it in sort of neurobiological terms we're hardwired to connect with other people so human beings can only flourish in community we're intrinsically social and relational or intrinsically political in aristotle's sense and i, I imagine later in this panel we'll get into that issue in more depth talking about COVID and the effects of of the lockdown so against this kind of background understanding of the human person we can understand mental illness in as 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 in all its complexity in uh, in terms that are not simplistic and reductionistic, right? So, because we're a unity of body and soul, we know that mental illness can originate in the body, and the sort of medical disease model is useful to some extent in understanding mental illness. It's not comprehensive, but um, but we can we can understand mental illness in terms of what we have. Maybe there's a broken part in the brain or the wires got miscrossed and that's leading to the symptoms of schizophrenia, my hallucinations or my delusions. But we can also understand uh, mental illness in terms of misdirected behaviors, right? That my, my will, my freedom is not fully 
uh, in line with my rationality because of the fact that that my nature is wounded and uh, the fact of what the theologians call concupiscence. And this can lead us in the direction of eating disorders and addictions and suicide and and being impaired, not in terms of what we have, but in terms of what we do and in terms of the exercise of our freedom. We can struggle because of innate traits of, of what or who we are. We may have uh, IQ traits that are on the low end of a normally distributed spectrum. So we may struggle in that regard with some form of cognitive impairment. Uh, we may have personality traits that are on the extreme end of the spectrum um, and that cause us in certain circumstances to have particular vulnerabilities. And then finally, as uh, Charles Taylor talks about a lot, he was he was with us yesterday we can suffer and struggle because of what we have experienced, right? All of us are embedded within a particular story. We understand ourselves and our identity and who we are and where we're going by virtue of the fact of being placed within a particular narrative. And so we can struggle uh, with mental health problems because of what we have experienced, right? And this is the, this is the perspective that allows us to understand things like trauma, or grief as perfectly understandable and uh, expected responses to certain adverse life experiences. And so I think, I think that all four of these um, perspectives, and, and perhaps we could add others to this list, are necessary to appreciate the complex ways that mental illness can manifest in our lives. And the danger for contemporary psychiatrists is to reduce everything, let's say, to the disease model and forget about the role of, of freedom and rationality in terms of uh, in terms of our behaviors, or reduce everything to a kind of um, chemical imbalance in the brain. Right? It's it may be true that you have uh, a serotonin imbalance, but it it may also be true that you have a problem with your with your mother, and these two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. So human beings are complex. Um, and I, I think there's a tendency today to understand uh, mental illness only in terms of what's happening in the cranium, right? And, and the solutions put forward to that are very often um, limited to uh, simply looking at being engineers of the synapse and tinkering with your mm -hmm. neurochemistry. And I don't want to throw those things out. I right. prescribe medications every day and they can literally be life-saving for certain conditions right. uh, but at the same time i think that the thicker and richer christian anthropology uh, anthropology the christian understanding of the human person allows us to kind of appreciate the nature of mental illness in much more depth thank you aaron that was a wonderful answer as i mentioned in my opening remarks i grew up in a family of people who suffered from mental illness and were sometimes hospitalized, so I always had a positive view of the role that psychiatric drugs could play to help people who are suffering from severe mental illness in order to be able to finish school or take care of their families. And it wasn't until I was really a graduate student in sociology and then teaching in sociology and working on a project with young adults who had experienced trauma where I began to ask the kinds of questions that you so artfully addressed, which is, what is it that the disease model of psych of um, psychology and 
um, psychiatry can address and really what are the limitations of the model. And so you just, I think, spoke about the power of your profession to help people, but also acknowledging some of the some of the limitations. But you also said one thing, and I want to turn this question now to our next guest, uh, Professor Mary Townsend. You started off your remark saying that a Christian anthropology starts with understanding the human person as as fallen, um, as sinful, in need of redemption. So that leads into my question to Mary Townsend. Um, Mary, you published a fascinating article in the Hedgehog review, which as you and I were discussing backstage before this event, you wrote that article in part because of a personal concern or a personal experience that sadly we both share, having worked with a student who committed suicide. And you wrote this article where you talk about Walker Percy and an essay from his, from, from his work, Lost in the Cosmos. And you start with, well, if Aaron just told us that our brokenness and our sinfulness is a fundamental part of our human nature. Walker Percy asks, wouldn't it be expected then to be depressed, if not suicidal, about the state of the human condition? So could you tell us a little bit about what led you to, wrote, to write that article in the Hedgehog Review, what Walker Percy says about depression and suicide, and how do we get out of the conclusion that the human person is nothing but sinful and wounded and therefore life doesn't have hope. Thanks so much, Margarita. Um, well, a few years ago, um, I had just finished my doctorate and I was teaching um, at Tulane University and Loyola University. And two years in a row, I had the really catastrophic experience of teaching during two different suicide clusters. So the first at Tulane for the first year, Loyola for the second. And um, it was really hard because I think both the students and I were struggling with basic information. We didn't always know what was going on. Um, I had to ask students, you know, what, you know, what's happening? You know, what, like, what is this recent death? Like, do you even know who died? Um, and we found, both of us, that the response of the university uh, was to basically ignore it, pretend it wasn't happening, just sort of speak about it as little as possible, and that was sort of their plan for helping the community heal. Well, it didn't work. Um, and so I found that in the classroom, particularly when I was teaching ex existentialist philosophy in both of these situations, uh, that it was only really in the context of trying to understand philosophically what the human person is and does and our, our relationship um, towards death. Um, you can think of it as a human being as sort of a lack of being, a being towards death. Uh, we experience ourselves as impermanent. Uh, we're caught in time between not yet and things that will never come back again. Um, so it's only really trying to understand the, tempor the temporary nature of being a human, um, our relationship towards death, that we can start to really understand what the human person is. So I think that's a really helpful addition to this idea of Christian anthropology. Um, when you can ask this question of yourself, what does it mean that I lack being? Then you can start to ask yourself, well, is there a being that doesn't lack being? But it's only when you're honest about your own relationship to death that these questions even become relevant or interesting. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone 
truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. Well, to follow up on that, Mary, so it sounds like what you're saying is that although what you witnessed was sometimes an unwillingness or perhaps an inability to face the reality of the tragic death of suicide of students, it sounds like you're actually saying that facing that reality of the tragic death of suicide could be the beginning of a philosophical question into who we are as human beings if we experience our own being as necessarily finite, as imperfect, and when you're faced with that reality, can it open up a deeper question that perhaps there is a being who is not finite? And then I guess I would ask, because you are a professional philosopher, how have some of the philosophers that you write about answered that question in different ways? And if I may be provocative, is there not a strain of philosophy that is actually quite nihilistic and denies that there is an ultimate being or that there is an ultimate answer to this search for truth? And how does that philosophy of nihilism contrast with Christian hope? Mm -hmm. No, I think um, one of the things I like to teach is the moment in the gay science where Nietzsche describes the death of God. He experiences it as something that will happen in the future, but he obviously understands that society is going to be dealing with the absence of faith. And so um, he speaks about it as something that will lead to nihilism. Um, so nihilism would be the condition of, um, you've been believing your whole life that human life is fine, it's, it's perfect, you know, it's, it's, um, it will get better and better, and then you sort of realize that it isn't, that it is imperfect, that you are finite, and it produces this crisis um, that can lead you to then sort of totalitize from that moment and believe, well, since my life isn't perfect, therefore nothing, nothing exists perfectly. There is no creature that exists all the way. Um, so when you turn to Christian existentialism, um, someone like Walker Percy, someone like Kierkegaard, um, they can really walk you through that moment uh, about being honest about what Kierkegaard calls um, the individual's absolute relationship to the absolute, which is his, his way of talking about the eternal, about God. Um, and it's a, re a real contrast to what he thinks of as real despair, which is not even knowing that you are a finite creature in relationship to an absolute. Real despair is going through your life as though your career was the most important thing, that job success was the only existence. And it's that moment when we tell high school students, college students, that that is their existence, that ought to be the focus of their being, that we are setting the thing, them up for something like nihilism and, um, and something like despair. That's fantastic. Thank you, Mary. So it sounds like you're saying that part of what happens in many universities, or at least that I have seen myself, that in some ways we set up an implicit end to human life, which is related to your job or your achievement. And by actually looking directly at these questions about our being and our mortality, we can actually posit uh, ultimately more fulfilling understanding of who we are as human beings and a more and a way to face the journey of life and the sadness that sometimes we face in life and face it with a sense of perhaps of courage and realism that's neither, I like to quote uh, Viktor Frankl in his memoir, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, in one of the appendices, he wrote about a kind of a tragic optimism that we can have a hope in the goodness of life and all that it can offer while being realistic about the tragedy and the sadness that, that we face. So with that, 
I wanted now to turn to our third panelist, Jeremy McClellan. Thank you for being here today. I heard you were a hit last night in the comedy show. And I wanted to ask you, I think, a rel relatively serious question. I was mm -hmm. quite uh, impressed by your willingness to speak publicly and write publicly about your experiences with depression. But mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you to explain to us how you have experienced the differences between confession as a relatively mm -hmm. recent convert to Catholicism, sure. the differences between confession and therapy for someone who's dealing right. with depression or anxiety. Um, what are What can those two different practices do to help someone who has mental illness and what can they not do? Right. So, uh, you know, before I begin, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm very honored to be here with these, uh, you know, other, other speakers. And, uh, I, I, I want to, well, first let me say that a few days ago, and, and this, is, this is all going to make sense in a second. A few days ago, uh, I got sinus surgery and a tonsillectomy. And so, uh, if I sound weird, then that's why, but I also mentioned it for, uh, another reason. And that is that, um, both chronic sinusitis, which I had, and uh, huge tonsils uh, can cause poor sleep and mouth breathing, right? So those are the two main things. Um, and uh, that can make ADHD, which is what I've been diagnosed with, um, and it, it can cause ADHD, depression, uh, all these other um, things. That can then cause uh, a lack of executive functioning, sort of like what ADHD is. And a big part of not uh, or of having a lack of executive functioning is not being able to keep your promises. So then we get to the question of, is it a sin to break your promises? And I think when you ask people that, the answer is, yeah, of course. Like, it's not good to break your promises. When you, you know, when you promise to do something, you, you should do it. And so, um, you know, if you break your promise intentionally and, and you then go to confession, confess your sin, do it quickly. Don't take up the priest's time, you know, with all that. But, you know, if I go to confession and I, you know, confess to breaking my promises or, you know, telling someone I was going to do a project with them and then totally forgetting, right. Um, then like, I'm going to keep going back there over and over and over and over and over uh, with the same confession uh, because I haven't fixed anything. Right. I've, I've, I've confessed to the sin. Um, but in order to like actually fix the problem, I have to um, either go to therapy and learn some you know stuff. I can take stimulants or antidepressants um, in order to, to like to fix that, or I can do what I did a few years ago and get um, uh, surgery, right? And it's a weird thing to think about. You know, does uh, surgery <laughs> like you can do a surgery or a um, or take a pill that will make you more virtuous, but and that's a weird thing to, you know, to like to say at the same time, if, if, you know, having surgery or taking a pill does suddenly make you able to keep your promises, then you weren't really breaking your promises on purpose, right? It wasn't an act of the will. If, if a pill can make you, uh, can make you do it. And so, Hey, good news. Right. Um, but you'll have to ask me again, or ask my wife in, in, in a few, uh, in a few months, whether I'm actually better at planning stuff. Um, you know, you know, as this thing goes, but, but I think that's a good uh, overview of my distinction between confession and therapy, where it's very, very important in order to be virtuous that you understand and you can interpret the world correctly. All right. And uh, we call that prudence. Um, and I sort of equate prudence with mental health, where 
Um, if you're mentally ill, it means that something is causing you to interpret and process reality in an incorrect way, which, by the way, presupposes that there is a correct way to process uh, reality, which presupposes some sense of objective truth. So um, you're not just imposing your will on reality. Uh, and so going to therapy can make you a more prudent person. And um, I think that's it, it's essential to living the virtuous life and to, um, I think, being a good person in, in, in general. Thank you. That was fantastic to hear. So it sounds like what you're saying, I mean, I was born and raised Catholic, so confession mm -hmm. was part of my grade school education. And I once heard somebody who converted to Catholicism talk about confession as a way of learning to just say out loud all of the things mm -hmm. that you know you willingly do that you shouldn't, you know? And when I was in third grade, I think probably what I confessed was, I don't know, taking a paper clip from my teacher's desk right. or something like that. But there's something to naming what you've willfully mm -hmm. chosen to do. And naming it and naming it in in a boring way. That's really important because in therapy, if you, if you have a sin that you're struggling with therapy, you're talking about the sin like it's just fascinating, right? It's just these interesting dilemmas you're in, right? But in confession, don't do that, right? Say, I lied once. That's it, right? Just And priests will thank me for telling everyone that, you know, you don't right. have to go into a long story about it. And I think that therapy, I mean, and in that sense, confession can be therapeutic in the sense that you stop thinking of your vices and your sins as interesting. I think it's one of the worst things that we get into as, as people is thinking that like, it's, it's just, you know, getting into that, that mindset of like your flaws or your, uh, no, your virtues and uh, your uh, your excellences, that, 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 that is what makes you interesting. And I think as you also wrote, if, or if I understood you correctly, therapy can be helpful precisely because it allows you to tell the long story that might lead yes. you to be the kind of person who does a certain kind of thing. And in doing yeah, that, absolutely. then you develop the virtue of prudence. But the right. goal is to develop the virtue of prudence. The goal isn't telling your story for the sake of telling your story because it's interesting, but for the sake of getting to the bottom of it to be able to develop the virtues. Right. And Joseph Pieper talks uh, a lot about, um, you know, one thing that's very essential to prudence is uh, being able to tell your story truthfully. Um, someone who lives in a sort of fantasy world um, and, you know, got a divorce, but then like narrates the divorce in a very dishonest way, uh, they're never going to see things correctly. And therefore, they're never going to be able to uh, act in accordance with reality, which is essential. And so um, by going to therapy, you tell stories, you, know, you talk about your abuse as a kid, right? Or, or whatever you know, issues you have. And um, while you're talking, the therapist, you know, a good therapist will sort of spot, probably just spot it from a mile away, gaps and uh, equivocations and uh, you know, ways that you've distorted the story, right? Yeah. Plot holes, if you will, right? You, you watch a movie with a million plot holes and it's just obvious. Um, and a good therapist will be able to ask you and, and make you realize that, uh, you know, what the actual truth is and so that you can actually live in reality, which is uh, such a gift of, of mental health. Yes. And as you say, also, it's a good therapist will help you discover right. those things. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, I say that because I, you know, when I struggled probably the most with mental illness was after my father died, which mm. his funeral was uh, September 10th, 2001. So I woke up oh, the gosh. following morning to 9-11 and oh. I was quite literally numb. Like I, I couldn't cry. I couldn't speak. I couldn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything. And I sought out therapy and it didn't go very well. So then I actually sought out a Catholic therapist and that helped mm -hmm. because I was talking to somebody who understood that I was going through a real experience of grief, mm -hmm. but that I was also dealing with the deep questions about what had just happened to our world. Our, it, to me right. on 9-11, it felt like the world had been turned upside down. Mm -hmm. And that was its own question that I had to deal with outside of therapy, mm. which now turns me to a question for all of you. We're having this panel in about a year after the pandemic really hit the United States. And all of you have thought about questions around mental illness and suicide before the pandemic hit. So what I wanted to turn our attention to now is what has the pandemic done to this epidemic of mental illness and suicide that we were already dealing with? Aaron, mm. I wanted to ask you as a psychiatrist, and you've, you've published on this, on the phenomenon of suicide and the rise in mental illness in your articles in First Things magazine, as well as public discourse. But could you give us just a brief overview of, of this rise in suicide, in particular, what groups are most susceptible? And then I'd like all of the panelists to comment on what is the relationship between social isolation and the culture of American individualism that might be, again, not to discount any of the biochemical processes that could lead to mental illness or suicide, but what are some of the cultural or social potential causes of mental illness and suicide and what could be done about those? Sure. Well, Margaret, I'm really glad that we're addressing this issue, even though it's a difficult issue to talk about. And I'm going to give a few numbers just to kind of sketch what's happening uh, in terms of suicide during the pandemic. But I want to first say this is a very personal issue for me. I lost a friend in December to suicide, a young man, 17 years old. Um, parents are very close friends. And uh, William was his name. Grew up with, with my uh, second oldest son. Um, they were very close friends. Uh, so I've, this is a kid I've known since he was an infant. And uh, he struggled with depression. And I think in part because of the effects of of the lockdown ended up taking his own life in, in December, just before Christmas. Uh, and going back even further, a close friend of mine, a good high school friend, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was, um, when I was in medical school. And seeing what he went through was, I think, a big part of what influenced me to, to choose psychiatry as my specialty. And Matthew uh, was his name, ended up taking his life as well. He died by suicide. Mm -hmm when I was an intern. Uh, so this is, this is a deeply personal issue for me, and it's one that I'm very, very concerned about right now. We know that suicide was on the rise uh, since 1999, even before the pandemic began, between 1999 and uh, 2019, we saw rising rates of suicide in the United States for men and women in basically every age group up until the age of 75, so a slight drop for the elderly, but everyone else was seeing more suicide in the United States. And this, is, this was against the backdrop of suicide rates declining internationally. So something was happening over the last 
20 years in the U.S. Uh, to contribute to this problem that wasn't necessarily a worldwide phenomenon. Now, since the pandemic began, we don't have definitive suicide numbers for 2020. It takes the CDC a year or two to collect that data, but we see some early indications that against the rising rates of suicide over the last 20 years, uh, we're seeing this problem worsen, not surprisingly, during the lockdowns. So the military, for example, last year reported a 20% rise in suicide among veterans. And there was a study done last June by the CDC that, um, that flagged some very concerning trends in terms of people contemplating suicide. So back in June of 2020, approximately one in 10, around 11% of Americans reported that they had seriously contemplated suicide, not over their lifetime, but during that month of June, sometime in the last 30 days. And most uh, uh, concerning to me was if you break it down by age, those 18 to 24 years old, in June of 2020, reported uh, that they had considered suicide in the last 30 days. That number was was 24%. So basically, one in four adolescents or young adults in the month of June had considered suicide. And um, so this is a this is a large spike in suicidal thinking or suicidal ideation, as compared to the previous year, 2019. And we saw. We saw a tripling of anxiety disorders from 2019 to 2020 in that study. We saw a quadrupling of depressive disorders in the same period of time. Uh, and we know, you know, we know that these, uh, these problems tend to contribute to suicide. So I'm, I have a lot of trepidation about um, what we're going to see when, when those numbers finally, finally are released, mm -hmm. but certainly uh, what I've seen clinically in my own clinical practice and the resident clinics that I supervise, what I've, what's impacted me personally mm -hmm. uh, through the loss of this, uh, this, this friend. Thank you. Has Aaron. got me, has got me very concerned, and I, I'm, right. I'm glad we're addressing it and, and looking Thank at maybe you. what can be done about it. Thank you, Aaron. I think some of the numbers that you gave are extremely sobering, but it sets the stage for why we're having this discussion. Given that suicide has been on the rise, as you said, amongst almost all age groups since at least 1999, and any of the preliminary data we have for 2020, all of, all of those data indicate, though, you know, as you said, they're not, maybe not finalized, all indicates that actual suicide and thinking about suicide or attempted suicide is going up. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. So that leads to, I think, the reason why we had this panel. And I wanted to ask perhaps all of you, but let me, let me start with Mary, because she and I were talking about this uh, backstage beforehand. Is there something to be gained now that 
the rates of suicide have been so high that they've affected so much of us, so many of us personally. They've affected you personally, Aaron. One of my closest friends lost her husband to suicide just a couple of months ago. And Mary, you've lost students to suicide and you wrote this article in the Hedgehog Review almost as a, as a creed occur that we need to talk about this. So how do we talk about the reality of suicide and death in a way that can give people a sense of hope. So Mary, could you share with us a little bit about, again, why you wrote this article in the Hedgehog Review and how you teach and address this very real phenomenon of suicide with your students? I think um, one of the strange ways about how universities tend to deal with this, and now they're, they're going to be dealing with it more because of this age group, the 18 to 24 year olds being at greater risk, is that we tend to sort of think that people who are having an existential crisis, like we need to sort of rope them off, not think about them, um, sort of like almost make it their fault. Um, but so one of the things about the rise in these numbers is that I think it's a problem that we, we won't be able to ignore. Um, and so I think that um, going back to that Walker Percy quotation that you mentioned earlier, uh, Walker Percy points out that to be human is to experience alienation. While we live, we're alienated from God. Um, we are alienated from others in our community. And the philosophic legacies that we have make this worse. And the careerism of the world make it worse. And as he points out, if, if you can live in a world like this, and this is even more true of the pandemic, and think that everything's fine, then you're the one with the problem. <laughs> Um, so if we can sort of see that attempting to understand this philosophically and religiously is, is the first task of all humans, and we can't put it off anymore, I think that's the beginning of something more like, like a serious approach to it. I think that um, college students tend to want to give themselves a way of thinking about these big questions, but they feel so pressured to get good grades and to only take courses that actively influence their job prospects that they can sort of pass this moment by. And I think it's just going to be so important that we think about education, philosophic education, theological education, as a way of just dealing together as, as a community um, about what these questions really mean for us. Thank you, Mary. I wanted to now also turn to Jeremy, because I know, mm -hmm. Jeremy, you work with a lot of young people and you do your stand-up comedy to a lot of different kinds of audiences. So mm -hmm. could you share with us the types of conversations that you have with young people or really anybody about questions around depression and suicide and also perhaps share with us why you chose to write so publicly about your own experiences with mental illness and what's been the reaction to you starting this conversation about it? Yeah. So. Um I don't know. I'm a comedian. I don't have much shame. So uh, that's it's not like I had to get over, uh, you know, sharing stuff like that. Um, I, I think that w one thing that's really important um, that people realize, just practically speaking, is that um, asking someone if they've been suicidal does not put the idea in their head. Right. Um, and uh, that's something that, you know, like before comedy, I worked with people with intellectual disabilities for like 15 years. One of my jobs was teaching suicide prevention to caregivers. Caregivers were always worried that if they asked somebody, you know, and people always worry, like, if I ask my wife, you know, is, like, have you ever thought about suicide? They'll take it as like a suggestion or I'll put the idea. That's not what happens, right? People think about suicide all the time. And uh, it, it's, a, it's an eternal question that we have. And um, I think one, one other very practical connected thing that we need to do is, um, like if, if, if you can get people like 
thinking about suicide, uh, uh, like if something pops into your head, it doesn't mean anything, right? It doesn't mean, it doesn't have like some big weighty like thing. And I think making way too much out of, uh, you know, intrusive thoughts is a lot like um, thinking too much of your dreams, right? Like if you dream that, that uh, you sleep with your neighbor's wife, it's not like, doesn't mean, you know, it's not this huge meaningful thing. Um, I don't know why I brought that up on Valentine's Day, but uh, it, it's not this huge, you know, like, and so part of uh, mental health is just being mindful. A thought pops into your head, you have an experience, you see it, you notice it, and then you just, and you just let it go, right? That's part of uh, sort of being mindful of your own thoughts. But um, I, I think we make a lot. Uh, one thing that I've learned as far as my own mental health is not, not to just catastrophize various uh things you know in in my own thoughts um and uh but as i talk you know all around the country and um you know when i like when i visit places when i do stand up and i talk about mental health and, and stand up and everything uh people are um always very very relieved just to be having the, like these conversations and um i think it's 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 super important, and especially now that we're isolated and uh, or have been for a year, and um, people don't necessarily have a sense of community, uh, and the, the the extended family, especially among white people, has collapsed. Uh, you know, compared to other other ethnic groups where they see their family all the time, um, and, and so I think these are conversations that we need to have that are you know just be as open and honest about it as possible. When you do it, nothing bad happens. You know, like there's there's no like if you're honest about your mental health and you do it in a in a in a helpful way, people are cool talking about it. Um, I, I've experienced nothing but nothing but good, uh, you know, responses uh, to me talking about it. So. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, it sounds like all the panelists would agree that it's important to have spaces and places to talk about the reality of depression or suicidal tendencies or mental illness. But I think it's also important to discuss what are the real questions at hand? Where are we leading people when we have these discussions? Um, and so I just wanted to ask then as a follow-up question to the panelists, when we begin to have these discussions, how do you engage with people so that the discussion has a a sense of guiding people towards, I would put out there, a place of being hopeful and not suicidal. So Mary or Aaron or Jeremy, how have you had these discussions that face perhaps the reality of the difficulties of life while leading people towards hope? Mary? No, that's a good question. I think um, in the professional world, we tend to think of these subjects as taboo, but then once you start talking with students about them, um, they're, they're right there. They've already been talking about them. They're so ready to talk about them. And they are looking for something like hope. And I think, um, I think honesty about the seriousness of the question is, is the first step. Um, but then also um, just knowing that our entire life is structured towards a being that is more eternal than ourselves, it's, it's the beginning of, of some kind of relationship to that. I think sadness, things like sadness, despair, if we think of them as questions, as, as, as a beginning of a path, a beginning of a seeking, um, then it's not a negative thing. It can be the beginning of some kind of greater relationship with the divine. Thank you, Mary. So just to, rec if I understood what you just said, thinking of sadness and despair, not as something that necessarily has to scandalize us when we hear someone talk about it, but as 
the beginning of a set of questions we can engage around. And I'll share one story, and maybe some of you, some of the other panelists have experienced this, but when I was at Yale and the faculty there, I was living in one of the, in one of the student dorms. And in a summer program that I taught, a student revealed that she had suicidal thoughts. And I have to admit, I felt scandalized. I didn't know what to do. I was terribly worried. And the advice I was given was to sit down with her and, and have a conversation. And that was helpful advice, and it did work well. But then I asked her to lunch again, and in that conversation, I felt like I was breaking an unwritten rule where I told her why I thought her life had meaning and value. She had been raised in an atheist household, and she had told me that she thought when we die, we are simply specks of dust that go back into the earth. And I shared with her that I was a Catholic and that the reason I thought her life had meaning was because God had created her in love and that the end of her life was to grow in love and that I believed one day she would come to experience that love in some way. Now, I had that conversation, I must admit, with a lot of trepidation because I thought at a secular university that's not something you're supposed to say. But the student's reaction really got me. She didn't say very much in that moment, but she went out all around New Haven because I had actually looked for Christmas cards in New Haven and couldn't find any. I just found like joy or something, but no Jesus or Mary or Joseph. She got a card with Jesus, Mary and Joseph on it and put it on my door and gave me a Christmas card and thanked me for my open thoughts and big hugs. So one thing I've learned as a cradle Catholic is that people who were not raised in faith are open when you are willing to share with them how you answer the meaning of life. And what I find mm -hmm. sometimes happens in universities is we blow open the question about the meaning of life and then we refuse to say how it is that we answer it. So for all of you who work, uh, you know, you as a philosopher, Mary, you, Aaron, as a psychiatrist and you, Jeremy, as a comedian, you're probably working with people all the time who answer this very fundamental question different than you. And how do you share your own understanding of what makes life meaningful when you know you're dealing with people who may be atheist or may not share your faith? It's, it's a great question, uh, Margaret, and I, I love the anecdote that you told. Um, and I think the first thing I would say, and Mary has written about this too, is that we shouldn't think of these conversations only as the purview of the professionals, right? So the sort of risk-averse university administrator who says, if a kid mentions suicidality to you, um, you should stop talking, uh, pick up your phone, and immediately refer them to student mental health uh -huh. is, is really insane. And I say that as the person on the receiving end at student mental health who may see them when they arrive into my office. But the, the first thing to do, even though it's uncomfortable, is to do what you did, is, is to listen. Look, tell me more about that. Um, when did you start thinking about that and um what do you what's going on in your life that has led you to the point where you you've begun to wonder whether it's worth going on or not anymore and just listen i think there's a lot of fear initially because we assume that we have to solve the problem and the first step is simply to understand and to make a connection with the person uh, so that the person feels a little less isolated in, um Walker Percy, who is who is not so utter, utter, utterly alone that it's not the, the, the cool clinical touch of a stranger that makes him feel less alone. So this idea of two lonely people sort of coming in contact 
with one another. And, and one person saying to another person, yeah, I can understand given what you've gone through or given what you've struggled with or, or just given the way that you see the world, um, why, you're, why you're suffering in this way or why this question has become mm -hmm. so pressing for you. And down the line, that may lead to uh, a referral and it may lead to deeper conversations about what gives me uh, in my own life meaning. And, and we know that those things are helpful, too. I mean, we can look at medical research. Uh, my, my colleague at, uh, at Harvard, Tyler Vanderweel, has done a lot of work in the last couple of years looking at the role of religious faith and religious uh, participation in, in religious communities and religious services and lowering the risk of suicide. He's replicating a lot of work that's been done previ previously on that. So it's, it's very well understood uh, in social science mm -hmm. that religious faith and participation will lower the risk of suicide. It doesn't immunize us against suicide and people of, of deep faith do succumb uh, to suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, the way in which we fundamentally see the world does matter and mm -hmm. right. and worldviews can various worldviews can lead to various forms of of insanity and so it's important for us to have those conversations about mm -hmm. metaphysics and and religion mm -hmm. as well because these things have real impacts on people's lives thank you aaron you know part of the reason i was willing to have that conversation with that young woman that i encountered at yale is that i had done a research project on young adults who had experienced some kind of a trauma. And what I heard again and again is um, similar to what you just said, that people who had suffered chronic mental illness felt that when they went to different institutions, whether that be therapy or psychiatry or sometimes even to their churches, they were treated as a problem to be fixed. And what mm -hmm. I kept hearing from people was that they just wanted to be treated as a person, as a whole person. And if you had lost a parent or lost a child or had some or had trauma from serving in the military, they wanted to be able to share those stories without necessarily being labeled as being a problematic person. So turning to that, I also discovered in those interviews, and I wanted to ask Jeremy about this, I discovered that many of the people who I interviewed found that their symptoms of mental illness decreased through prayer or some kind of meditation. And Aaron, you just alluded to this. There's plenty of now of uh, clinical studies that show this, that prayer or meditation can have a positive impact on reducing the symptoms of mental illness. But Jeremy, you also say pretty provocatively in your article that it's not the right thing to tell someone suffering from mental illness, you should just go pray more. So what is the role of prayer and meditation in facing mental illness? Jeremy, do you well, want to I mean, start? I think, I, I think you should tell everybody to pray more, uh, you know, no matter what is going on uh, and to meditate more. I don't think that uh, by that, I, you know, the, what I'm describing there is, is, is the response uh, that, you know, the reason they are struggling with, you know, their mental illness is because of some moral failing. And therefore, if they pray to, for God to fix it more, and like somehow God has to receive 27 prayers from them to fix it, and then but they're only at 22, and so it's, they need to pray more and get their numbers up, and then, and then God will make them happier or something. I think, uh, you know, when you talk about prayer, um, helping people with mental illness, like that, that, that in a very different way, um, is is exactly right because you know joseph Pieper talks at the end of uh, his book um happiness as contemplation you know where that is what happiness is 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 just the contemplation of reality um and uh and ultimately of god and um people 
who re- who reject that, which invo- involves a lot of you know rationalist people who are atheists. Um, the the there's this un, there's this restlessness, this desire to to go fix something, right? This desire to um, uh, to 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 make the world right, you know. And but part of our belief as as Catholics, I think, is that in, in the ultimate analysis, the world is sound. Like the world is um, is created by God. Uh, it is a gift to us, and it, in the final analysis, all is right with the world. And that is something that certainly hardly anyone believes today, um, that the basic fundamental reality of the universe is good and is love. Um, and I think that if you believe that, if, you know, if that is your worldview, if that is, um, uh, then I, th- I think you, you owe it to everyone just to not only operate that way, but to tell them. Uh, and that involves obviously prayer. And uh, I mean, I, I meditate and, uh, and do the rosary, et cetera. Um, not as much as I should, but it's, it's, you know, that just being and is, is not just, uh, some trick that you're doing to improve the amount of serotonin in your brain. That should be your fundamental like approach and, uh, the way that you, um, uh, your, your position towards the world. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Thank you, Jeremy. Now, that was wonderful. Well, Mary, I would like to ask you as a as a professor of philosophy, the stereotypical professor of philosophy was not would not talk about prayer or meditation, but you've written some articles that I think very directly get at this. So could you tell us in your environment at, at St. John's, how do you talk about spirituality or faith, not just as a philosophical system, but as a worldview, as something that's personally meaningful and could potentially be personally meaningful to the students that you interact mm-hmm. with? Well, I appreciate Jeremy's point that if you think about prayer as an instrumental practice that will get you someplace else, then I think that that immediately you're going to be missing the point. Um, Mm -hmm. At St. John's, I've had the pleasure of teaching metaphysics, and I enjoy teaching metaphysics from a theistic perspective and a non-theistic perspective, because I think there's so much just when you get to being, when you're just trying to think about existence, you're so far along the path towards thinking about ultimate things as well. Just being in the presence of what existence means and letting yourself be there, not because you're hoping it'll make you feel better, but just sitting with it for its own sake. Um, I think prayer is like that too. I think saying the rosary, I think just walking, anything you can do for its own sake puts you in that mode of contemplation of existence. And it sounds like from what you're describing, the way that you try to teach philosophy, in particular philosophy of metaphysics, is the contemplation of our being and the contemplation of our humanity and being in awe, being in stillness, being in wonder at the mystery of creation, including the fact that we, that we exist and creating a space for that in the university. Is that what I hear you saying? A kind of creating a space for the disinterested learning that mm-hmm. should characterize a university, but so often gets caught up in one or another 
goal or credential or skill. Mm -hmm. No, and this is this is a very old Aristotelian distinction, the distinction between something as an instrumental good and something for its own sake. And you see it mapped out in human life. We take our life as instrumental. We take like our, as instrumental to a career. And then also you think of the university as instrumental to some further building block. But you get lost in this infinite loop chain of things that are for the sake of something else and something else, that it is returning back to the presence of being. Um, it's so hard to turn your, your eyes back to that moment. But that is the beginning of philosophy, and I, th I do think that it is the beginning of a religious consciousness. Thank you. Let me ask all of the panelists another question. Again, given the rise in suicide that's been occurring perhaps for 20 years and seems to be accelerating during the COVID pandemic. Several of us on this panel have known someone in the past year who has committed suicide. What can you say and what should you not say to the loved ones who have lost somebody to suicide? How do you communicate this idea that we've talked about that the world is ultimately, uh, that the world is ultimately good. It's it, that the basis of reality, as Jeremy said so beautifully, is love. How do you communicate that unity, that love, that hope to someone whose life has been marked by tragic suicide? I think you, you begin by being present to them and by, by showing them a loving, faithful presence, really through friendship. Um, don't tell them that you know what they're going through or try to analogize it to some experience of loss that you've had. I, I suppose if you have lost a loved one to suicide, uh, you can do a little bit of that. Um, but I have, not, I have not lost a child to suicide. I cannot imagine. Losing a friend was, was bad enough. So, so telling William's parents that somehow I understand what they were, what they were going through uh, would have obviously been a lie. And they, they don't need that. Uh, what they need to know is that you love them, that you love the person that they lost. Um, one of the beautiful things that was emphasized at the homily at Williams' funeral is that as Catholics, we have something that we can do for the deceased. We can pray for them. We can offer the mass for them. Uh, we can offer rosary and suffrages and, and, and prayers uh, via the communion of the saints, that the person is not utterly lost to us and that because Christ descended into our misery in the incarnation and on the cross, uh, no person is ever lost to, to God's love, right? That he, he, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he suffered the, the anguish that we suffer um, and the sense of abandonment with his cry on the cross is an identif identification, I think, with those who, uh, who, because of their illness, who because of their anguish or their despair, uh, cannot at a particular moment um, feel God's presence. And so I think the key is friendship. And the key is that the Christian community has to show um, that we love one another, uh, not in spite of, but especially in and through those most difficult periods of life and to see the whole local Christian community when William died come out and, and support his parents and support his siblings and his family was as, as anguishing as the whole thing was, was also very, very edifying and beautiful. And, um, and that's what Christians have, I think, always done. 
from the very beginning, and that's what attracted uh, the the pagan uh, society mm. that Christianity came into. Uh, that's what began to attract people to the church, see what, what love they have for one another. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, being present, being in friendship, praying for the dead, lamenting publicly together. Mary and Jeremy, in the few minutes that we have left, would you like to share your thoughts on this question? How do you respond in a compassionate way to somebody who has, whose life has been marked by tragic suicide of a loved one? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, uh, just, you know, ha happiness being this, you know, this uh, docile contemplation and, and reception of reality, um, that, that that's not a comfortable thing. I think it's very important uh, to just like to say that, that like, you know, meditation, prayer, um, and uh, it, it's not necessarily fun, right? It's not necessarily um, that you are, uh, you know, part of docility is, is just not imposing your will on reality. And that means that when someone is uh, suffering, when there is, uh, you know, hor horrifying tragedy, you, like you're not escaping that to then think about flowers or something like that. You are just, you know, receiving it um, and, uh, and not trying to, you know, cram it into your preconceived idea of, of, of what the person should be going through or, you know, how, how they should be processing it or what the stage of grief they're on or whatever, you know, it's, there is, uh, you know, something very, um, courageous, but difficult about, um, you know, uh, about just taking that, that person's suffering, uh, and just being with them when Thank they, you. you know, as they are suffering. Thank you, Jeremy, being, being mindful, being receptive to the moment, not analyzing it, I think you said. Mary, we have very little time, but I do want to give you the final word before I make an announcement. Oh, well, I agree with uh, what the Jeremy and Aaron were saying, and I think that maybe just the last thought is to have respect for someone in great suffering that you can't understand or analyze, and, and, and know that they've seen something of the vastness of the world that is terrifying, and so to have respect for that feeling and sit with it. So that death is part of a reality, tragedy is part of the reality that we all face and have respect for people who have seen the darkness of reality, but be present and mindful and hopeful and loving. Well, thank you, Aaron, Jeremy, and Mary for this wonderful conversation. Thank you to all of our viewers on YouTube and thank you to all of you who organized the New York Encounter and made this conversation possible. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.